Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, I am not Jonah Goldberg. I'm Clem Kitchen, and I have um, I have s- climbed into Jonah's seat. He stepped out to get a sandwich, and uh, I jumped in his seat. I locked the door, uh, and so I'm going to drive the the Remnant podcast today. So uh, pay no mind to any uh, screaming or loud knocks that you may hear. Everything's fine. We're just going to try to do some uh, some alternative programming. Um, no, seriously, Jonah's away. And so he was kind enough to ask me to fill in. And, um, as soon as, uh, I realized I had that opportunity, I immediately thought that I wanted to have a conversation with my good friend, Luke Coffey. Uh, Luke is, um, a, a, just a brilliant guy. He really understands the issue, uh, of Ukraine and European national security and foreign policy. And, uh, we had a great conversation, uh, that I think you'll really enjoy. Uh, so thanks for joining us and I hope this is helpful. Luke, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Klein. Yeah. So um, real quick, just, you know, it doesn't have to be very long. Would love to know, like, who are you and why do we care what you think? Well, that's actually a very good question. No, um, uh, I am uh, Luke Coffey, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, I focus on... Uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the Caucasus, uh, Black Sea, Caspian Sea, Central Asia regions. Uh, I've devoted um, almost two decades of my life to these transatlantic security issues, um, both in uh, the think tank community, uh, but also practical uh, government, legislative and executive experience, but in the UK. And then uh, more at the tip of the spear type of stuff uh, when I served active duty in the U.S. Army based in Europe. Um, so this, this is a region of the world that I'm very passionate about and something, uh, something that I've been following very closely throughout my professional career. And you and I know each other because we had the privilege of working together for more than three years at, uh, at a think tank. And, uh, you know, when, when Ukraine cooked off, uh, you very quickly, you know, I knew exactly where I was going to go to to find out, all right, who, who can help me think through this? Uh, who's got a, a strong understanding of the situation? And uh, who's someone who I know has a, a deep insight into uh, not just the, not just the region, but he, but American interests in the region and, and, you know, ways that we ought to be thinking about these things. And you have not disappointed. You, you have been a source that I turn to frequently. Uh, and um, Hudson is uh, was was brilliant to snap you up, and I think you've already made a name for yourself there. So congratulations. Um, so walk us through. I mean, they're <laughs> trying to keep up with what's going on in Ukraine is 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 a full time effort now. I mean, the, the, 
I think we are all amazed, frankly, at the speed and the scale of change that's happened in, in say, the last two weeks. Uh, walk us through some of the key developments over the last couple of days that you're keeping your eye on. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine is a reminder that there's perhaps no greater motivating factor for someone to fight than to defend their homeland, to defend their their town, their village, sometimes their house, sometimes their family. And that's what we're seeing today uh, across Ukraine. In the earlier days of the war, it was um, often highlighted in our media that, you know, millions of Ukrainians fled the country to seek refuge in neighboring countries such as Romania and Poland and the Baltic states, uh, for example. But there were also tens of thousands of young men who returned to Ukraine. Uh, there were tens of thousands, uh, or at least uh, high thousands, of foreign nationals who who went to Ukraine to to, to help them fight. Uh, so what we're seeing now, um, in terms of uh, the battlefield situation in Ukraine, I think is the, the 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 full mobilization and the culmination of this this uh, effort by the Ukrainian military to call up reserves, to get battle ready, to integrate the international uh, volunteers, to get those Ukrainians who came back to the country in a uniform, trained with a weapon. So we're seeing this happen at a time when Russia's military offensive has essentially culminated in the in, in Ukraine, and it, it's a technical military term, but it basically means by culminating, the Russians are unable to uh, advance any further than where they are now, and have to start a defensive role before they can refit and reconstitute to further attack again. So we're seeing um, after successful counterattacks outside Kiev over the uh, uh, late spring, um, Sumy. Uh, as well in northern Ukraine, uh, we're, we're seeing these two counterattacks led by the Ukrainians in the northeast and in, a, in a, a region called Kharkiv. It's the name of a second largest city in Ukraine, but also the name of the province. And then also in the south, uh, Kherson. Uh, Kherson, again, it's a city. It's, the, uh, I would say, about the 20th largest city in Ukraine. So it's sizable, but it's not a big one. Uh, and it's also the name of a, of, a, of a province in Ukraine. So we're seeing these two joint efforts. And, and the, the Kharkiv counterattack has made tremendous success uh, at great cost to uh, the Russians. Um, the counterattack in the south near Kherson is going a bit more slowly, but steadily. And progress is being made there as well. And actually, in in recent days, this is the front where we've seen the most progress take place. Yeah. So just for you know everybody, kind of reorienting themselves as, as there you know many of you are probably driving or walking or something and don't have a map in front of you. But yeah, this this the the counteroffensive in the northeast portion of Kharkiv. This is what we've been talking about for the last week and a half or so, where. Uh, the, the Ukrainian military was able to kind of push through and, and essentially take back um, huge swaths of land that, that Russia had, had been um, taking over since about April timeframe. So in, in the course of, you know, three days or so, uh, the, the Ukrainian military kind of takes this land back. And there was a lot of discussion that, it, it, you know, was this, was this a feint? Because a lot of the, uh, of the Ukrainian military activity that had been seen up until that point was seen to be focusing on that, that southeast portion 
of Kershon. Um, but then after, after the Ukrainians made those advancements in the counteroffensive in the north, um, you know, even people, you know, like I, I looked at this and said like, okay, wow, this was, you know, an unmitigated success. Um, you know, maybe the Ukrainian military tries to capitalize on the periphery of this, but now they're going to, you know, kind of need to sit still, refit, replenish. Um, I don't, I don't anticipate any kind of a massive effort, but the reality is, is what we've seen over the last week or two in the Southeast near Kershaw has exceeded what I anticipated. Now I'm not an expert the way you are on this. So maybe you saw this coming, but my point here is, is that um, the, the, you know, Zelensky and the, and the, and the Ukrainians are really pushing their advantage and not only pushing the advantage, but doing so effectively. Are you surprised by how effectively they're being? Um, I'm not all that surprised to be honest with you. I was never one who, um, was surprised by the fact that uh, President Putin's so-called three-day special military operation um, didn't uh, finish in three days. I knew the Ukrainians would fight. I've been, you know, traveling to Ukraine. I've been meeting with Ukrainian officials over the years. And I knew that the single most important thing the U.S. and the international community could do early on was to tell the Ukrainians they could fight if they're invaded again. In 2014, when Crimea was invaded, the Obama administration said, hold on, we'll settle this diplomatically, don't fight. And we, you know, eight, eight years later, we, we saw what happened, right? So this time the Ukrainians knew what was going to happen. They saw that movie before. They didn't want to see it again. So they stood up and, and, and they fought. So uh, in terms of uh, the most recent counterattacks, I, I'm not surprised either, to be honest with you. Um, I, it, it's clear that the Ukrainians now have the momentum on their side uh, because of the international assistance that they've been given and just the... Um, you know, the, 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 the will of the Ukrainian people to, to resist and to defend, mainly, you know, down to the leadership of President Zelensky himself. Um, and and I, am, I am not surprised that the, the offensive in the south near uh, Kherson is going more slowly than the one in, in, in Kharkiv. Um, because even before the offensive in Kharkiv, uh, uh, the, the counterattack in Kharkiv, the Ukrainians had already made some modest success in, in that battle space anyway. So they, even though it wasn't highlighted very much, they, they already had a bit of momentum going. Um, in Kursan, the, the terrain is uh, problematic and, and difficult. You have the, the Dnipro River, which sort of divides Ukraine almost in, in half in a way. And then you have the tributaries from this big river. And Kursan is actually on the western bank uh, of the Dnipro River. So it's actually Russia's toehold uh, to get to Odessa, which is further on down the coastline and Ukraine's third largest uh, city and its largest port city on the Black Sea. So I knew that because of the way the terrain was and the, the tributaries and, and the bridges being blown up or damaged, that this, the fight would be much harder in the South. And also, I think that um, uh, the, the South is more important to, to Russia uh, for its geopolitical aims. It wants to create this, uh, this uh, so-called Novorossiya, this, this, uh, this a historical region called New Russia that is along the Ukraine's um, southern coastline with the Black Sea. And Kursan is more important than, than I would say, Kharkiv in that sense. So I, 
is part of uh, more integral to Putin's vision of how he would like the in-state to occur um, with its invasion of Ukraine. But one, one more point on this too, um, you know, there are credible reports that the Russians are being told that they're not to surrender and not to fall back. Um, and the Ukrainians have done some serious damage uh, on the bridges, the main bridges crossing the Dnipro River. Um, so that, the Ukrainians are fighting a, an enemy that knows it's probably do or die. And the resistance is stiffer because of that. But we're already seeing some pockets being uh, developed by the Ukrainian counterattack. And we might very well be on the verge of seeing the largest uh, single capture of uh, POWs in, you know, in modern history, uh, in recent history, I should say, on, on the battlefield. If, um, if the uh, retreat is fully cut off and the Russians just say they've had enough. So, uh, okay, a couple of things. So um, one interesting thing, so I, it, there are reports that in, in the counteroffensive, both in the North and the South, that one of the things that the Ukrainians have done is they've either taken um, captured Russian vehicles or they've marked them with the, the Z, you know, sign uh, that have been, you know, identifying Russian vehicles. And they've actually been able to push through enemy lines and operate behind those lines and then, and then, you know, surprise Russian forces by, you know, essentially pretending to be Russian forces. So two things stick out to, to me on that, right? So one, uh, it, it tells me that the Russians don't have uh, a sophisticated, you know, kind of blue force tracker, okay, but, you know, a, 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 a technological way of identifying good guys and bad guys, right? So if somebody point, you know, paints a Z on their, <laughs> on their on their Humvee or whatever, like okay, I guess you're through. So that's that's one thing which is surprising. I mean, considering like you know this is Russia, you know, so not only do they not have advanced, you know, so, you know, sophisticated military capabilities that that they're deploying, but just even basic kind of blue force tracking stuff. But then it tells me also that the Ukrainians do have that, right? That they're able to identify between friend and foe, despite you know, kind of the disguise. And so it just, it's one of these things where the whole narrative of uh, the two forces versus each other is kind of flipped, where it's increasingly the case, it seems, that, yeah, you know what, the sophisticated, capable military force is the Ukrainian force. And the kind of backwater, broken, you know, confused, and and certainly, um, as you mentioned, uh, concerning the POWs, like the, the kind of... Um, exhausted force is the Russian force. Um, is, I mean, like thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, the blue force tracker system for listeners who aren't familiar with this, this is a system that the U S military has had for decades. Uh, so we know, you know, each Humvee, each vehicle, you know, each helicopter, you know, where it is in relation to the enemy on, on the battle space. Um, and it is shocking that the Russians uh, lack this, what I think is a very basic level of, of technology for, for the battlefield. Um, but the Ukrainians have also proven to be very um, uh, adaptable and uh, creative and sophisticated with their uh, uh, with their ingenuity uh, to uh, close the gap on shortcomings that they may have when it comes to going up against the Russian military. And you know, I, I don't know if the U.S. or any other uh, partner country has given the Ukrainians a blue force tracking system. I don't know if the Ukrainians have always had one, and no one really just 
knew about it or talked about it. I mean, it's not the sexiest piece of military hardware at the end of the day. So, you know, maybe you know, they had it and no one discussed it. But it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, some clever Ukrainian didn't, you know, somehow coordinate everything by, you know, the Apple track your iPhone, uh, <laughs> you know, so so there's a the set of AirPods in you know, every Ukrainian vehicle that can be tracked uh, uh, by you know some guy on, the, on uh, some Ukrainian on their iPad. Uh, that could have, that could very well be. And the Ukrainians have been taking these commercial capabilities and and turning them to their advantage on the battlefield. But it, it does show um, the the lack of training, the lack of discipline, and and also the the, the lack of situational awareness in the battle space by the Russians, which I think in part derives from its lack of air superiority or air supremacy. Um, they, they, they don't have many eyes in the sky right now. Um, the, one, the eyes in the sky they have are being shot down or using drone jamming technology to bring them down. Now, the, the introduction of Iranian drones into the battlefield uh, in the past couple of weeks is an interesting and concerning development. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say at this stage it's going to be a significant game changer. So before we kind of get wrapped up in ir- irrational exuberance, I mean, this is obviously, a, a you know, there's a long way to go here. Uh, there's still, you know, major challenges. Now, before the counteroffensive, both in the North and the South, a lot of the conversations I was a part of were raising the point of, um, you know, concerns regarding the Ukrainian military's ability to, to um, refit and reconstitute um what are your how how are they doing i mean it's it's awesome that they've made the advances that they have but you know they're in for some hard fighting still um what what is your assessment of that force's ability to kind of stay in the fight and maintain the force for the for the middle to long term absolutely um that's an important point uh, that has to be considered um we don't know how many ukrainian soldiers have have died or been wounded. You know, when I speak to Ukrainian uh, officials uh, off the record, you know, I'm told that it's about a third, you know, their casualty rate is about a third of uh, the the Russian casualty rates. And even the Russian casualty rates are all over the uh, board. Um, I think it's safe to say it could be measured in in the tens of thousands, probably the low tens of thousands. I think that's a safe assessment. So we can only assume that you know, Ukraine, which has as much had a much smaller military starting out and a much smaller population, it's probably suffered between ten and twenty thousand. Um, who who knows? But it is a grind right now. This is a type of state on state industrial warfare that we have not experienced in a few generations. And I think we have to sometimes take a step back and realize that. Uh, this is going to be measured in months and years, not days and weeks. I remember uh, when the Kursan counterattack became public, uh, I think it was around um, August uh, 28th or so, um, end of August. Uh, three, three days later, uh, someone on social media was saying, oh, it's a failure. You know, they haven't broken through. And, and I'm like, oh, oh, you know, call me in three months, okay? Let's assess where progress is in three months, not three days. Um, you know, th- this is a, th- these are serious military maneuvers that require a lot of planning, uh, prepping the battlefield, logistics. And, um, and right now, you know, Ukraine seems to be uh, on the front foot, but it's not going to be easy. Now. 
two observations to make on this. The reason why Kherson was captured relatively quickly by the Ukraine by the Russians early on in the war is because they broke out of Crimea. The Russians came out of occupied Crimea and headed uh, towards Odessa. Um, the terrain uh, between Crimea and Kherson, or to the Dnipro River, is pretty flat. And so that's why early on in the war, it looked like Russia was capturing huge amounts of territory relatively easily and, and rapidly, because they were, um, because of the terrain facilitating that. The Ukrainians knew that their first natural line of defense was the Dnipro River, and that's where they decided to fall back to. The same can be said if the Ukrainians are able to get a foothold on the eastern shore of the Dnipro River. It could really expose Crimea. And then it puts Mariupol um, in jeopardy as well for the Russians. They're going to have to make some tough decisions on where they defend and how they defend. So, so Mariupol's that, that kind of central region between Kershaw and Kharkiv or Luhansk, right? Well, Mariupol is a it's, it's central between um, the Russian the border of the Russian Federation in eastern Ukraine and the uh, peninsula that connects uh, the isthmus that connects the Crimean Peninsula to mainland Ukraine. So it sits right in the middle along the coast. It's Ukraine's tenth largest city. And when when Putin was able to capture that after a very gallant and brave defense that will go down in the history books by the Ukrainians, but after he was able to uh, capture Mariupol, he basically created his land bridge between the Russian Federation and Crimea. And that's why that's important to Russia. But uh, if, um, if, if the lines collapse uh, and the Russians start fleeing um, on the eastern side of the Dnipro River, well, then, you know, anything could really happen at, at that point. Um, and then the second observation is Russia's mo- mobilization that we're seeing. Um, Yes, we've all like seen the videos on Twitter and TikTok. I mean, I'm not on TikTok, Klein. You taught me uh, better than to be on TikTok. But I've seen TikTok videos uh, on Twitter uh, of these crazy scenes of Russian young Russians mobilizing, just completely drunk and and you know goofing off and getting issued rusty AK-47s and all this stuff. Um, but they have volume, right? And uh, you know if it, get my concern is that it'll take them a few months, but they will mobilize a significant number of troops, and the Ukrainians need to be ready for that. Uh, so, you know, it's very well, it could very possibly be that we're still in the middle of the Battle of Kharkiv right now. You know, these, the, you know, these battles can often last months. Um, so, or, or we'll see what happens near Kherson if the Russians are able to get some of these troops on the front lines in the coming months. I don't even think it'll be measured by weeks, it'll be months. So I think we have a long road uh, ahead of us. And I will say on the rusty AK-47 videos, you know, I hate to say it, but all you need is some oil and a brush. And that AK is probably going to work just fine. So we, yeah, we there's a get, reason that's the preferred <laughs> yeah. weapon of every terrorist and pirate around the planet. Exactly. Yeah. So we shouldn't get too complacent uh, about uh, some of the uh, silliness we've seen on social media with the Russian mobilization. So okay. So in, uh, obviously, concurrent with all of this has been, uh, you know, certainly within the speech where Putin announced the mobilization. He also reiterated, in, in no uncertain terms, a, a nuclear threat. Right? That that one we you know he he uh, foreshadowed that he was going to have these you know quasi referendums in these controlled areas. 
and that once the people you know supposedly voted to to uh, join Russia that he would defend those regions as native Russian lands up to and including the use of, of nuclear weapons um, just we'll get into this in a little more detail in a second but just tell me your your original response and and sense of that threat how serious do you take it what other insights would you would you kind of give us well I think we are in uncharted territory in the transatlantic uh, community right now um, you know we've seen before our eyes the largest land grab using military force um, anywhere people say oh is it the largest land grab in Europe since World War II well I think it's the, probably the largest land grab anywhere in the world since World War II not just Europe. Um, we've seen um, yeah, things that were just probably unheard of or un, uh, not even thought of that take place uh, as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So you can never rule out the use of uh, WMDs. But I would say, it's, I'm not sure what advantage it would give Putin at this stage or this phase in the conflict. Um, I'm not an expert on... Russian nuclear doctrine, but you know, it's my understanding from what I've read and speaking to people that the whole um, idea of using a tactical nuclear weapon to, you know, they they call it escalate to de-escalate, is often done when you're already winning or when you have when you're on the front foot. You know, you, you're making advancements, you're winning, and then the use of that tactical nuke shocks your adversary to like push peace talks across the the finish line, right? I'm not sure, uh, considering the current tactical state of the battlefield, that a tactical nuclear weapon um, would bring any great advantages to Russia. Um, you know, tens of thousands of civilians have been killed. Uh, probably tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have been killed and wounded. Um, I'm not sure that uh, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, even in Kiev, is going to um, break the will of the Ukrainians at this point. They've already suffered so greatly. I think, uh, sad to say, they're probably um, numb or, or more numb than they w would be otherwise to the suffering and, and the, uh, the violence. Um, and I'm not so sure if, if a tactical nuclear weapon is meant to be used to achieve some sort of advantage on the battlefield. That requires having a military force that is trained and equipped to operate in a nuclear environment or a, radi a radioactive environment. And this is the same for biological and chemical weapons as well. And I don't think the Russian military has demonstrated that it's trained proficiently to operate in this complex WMD. It was having a hard enough time with mud. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're going to have a hard enough time this winter, I think. Um, yeah. And anyone who's, you know, this was part of the debate with the concern about chemical weapons earlier in the war. And I'm like, you know, anyone that's ever fired a rifle with a gas mask on and then ran around in like Mop 4, which Mop is you four. Know, yeah. you know, the full, <laughs> you know, chemical gear, it's not an easy thing to do just like in a training environment, much less doing this like in real life while you're being shot at. Uh, so I, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's always dangerous in my line of work to make predictions um, but I, right now, under the current circumstances, I don't see Russia using a weapon of mass destruction. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this question here. I'm writing about it. And, um, you know, generally speaking, consensus seems to be uh, forming around, you know, three potential scenarios. If Putin were to use a nuke, there's kind of three scenarios in which he might do that. You know, the, the first one being uh, 
the 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 most dangerous and, and escalatory one would be some type of an attack against a NATO country. The idea of kind of like, okay, let's make the big, the problem bigger, right? And like, if we're going to do it, let's go all in. Um, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, just in the sense of um, even if he somehow convinced himself that, well, you know, like I said, if, if I'm going to go, I might as well go all the way. The consequences of that are so immense and so unpredictable. It's hard to see how he, even he, Putin, could conclude that that would serve his interests in any meaningful way. Like that, that just that to me feels like a very low probability uh, scenario. Um, the, the the second scenario is one where he chooses to use a low yield or a tactical nuke against some type of traditional military target inside Ukraine. So you know some massed force somewhere, maybe a nuclear power plant or other critical infrastructure kind of target. And and in one sense that would make um, you know more sense, but but even then, its usefulness beyond you know simply just terrorizing people seems unclear, right? Because the largest groupings of Ukrainian forces are now bumped up against areas that Moscow claims is, is sovereign Russian territory, uh, and and uh, where where Russian troops would be exposed, and as you said, would would at least have to operate um, in those areas. And I I I don't think it would materially change the Ukrainian conviction or will to fight. And so it, it, again, it just seems like, I don't think this gets him anything, right? It, it only makes life harder for him when you think about the global response to it. And then the final scenario is more of a, a demonstrative detonation somewhere. So maybe this is, um, you know, above or in the Black Sea somewhere, maybe high over Ukraine where the, where the, the, um, the, the fallout and, and, and the destructive nature would be, you know, heavily mitigated. Um, maybe some kind of vacant place like Snake Island. That would be symbolic, perhaps. Um, but again, it just seems like the risk introduced by taking that, even just in terms of fallout, you know, um, it just doesn't seem to actually serve anything. And, and from a messaging standpoint to the West and to Ukraine, it actually communicates a, a confused message, right? It says, it says, hey, I'm I, Putin, am willing to break the nuclear taboo. And so you know, you should really up your commitment to kind of defeating me, but I'm I'm not willing to kind of leverage these uh, these weapons for you know all they're worth, and so it's this confusing message. So if everybody's thinking rationally, I'm with you. It's one of these things. Where it doesn't make sense for him to do it. I understand why he would threaten to do it because he's trying to influence and weaken political will, but in terms of actual military advantage, it just doesn't offer it for him. But then I have to say. I would have said the same thing about an invasion, yeah. <laughs> right? I would have, I would have said like, yeah, I mean, like this makes no sense. Why would you do this? This is only negative downside for him. Uh, and then there's been a whole series of choices he's, he's made uh, that I would say, again, this, this makes no rational, no rational uh, sense. Why would he do this? So unfortunately when, when, a, when a guy like Putin, especially having done what he's done recently says, I'm willing to, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to pull out the, the big guns, you have no choice but to take him seriously and begin preparing. Yeah, that's right. And as, you know, as I said, um, we're in uncharted territory. And as you just laid out, Klan, very well, there are a lot of things that have happened that people weren't expecting to to happen. On the invasion, I, I was always in the camp that I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when. Um, I, I, I wrote an article back in 2016 um, where I highlighted 
uh, six areas where I thought Russia would be um, taking some sort of military security action. Um, and of, of the six, uh, at least, I would say about three and a half or so have, have come uh, correct. And, you know, one of them was unfinished business in Ukraine. Uh, I just don't think that he was going to stop with Crimea. And he thought it was going to be a lot easier than, than what it was. Um, so, so I bet, again, we are in uncharted territory and who knows what he's thinking or, or what he's being told, but the, the implications of using such a weapon, especially when he enjoys at least tacit support or at least no opposition on like the international stage from countries like India and China and I think some of that goodwill could quickly uh, evaporate if he did use a, uh, a nuclear weapon. So at the end of all this, though, do you think Ukraine can win this? Tell me what you mean by win if you do. And then what should the United States and the rest of the Western world be doing to make that outcome more likely? Yeah, I'm often asked this issue about winning. Um, but the reality, this is a this is a question that's impossible to answer for anyone who's not a Ukrainian or a Ukrainian leader. Ultimately, it is up to President Zelensky and his uh, mandate from the Ukrainian people to decide what they will be satisfied with. Um, you know, let's say, and, and I don't think this will happen, but let's say uh, Z- Z- President Zelensky wants to have talks with Russia and they settle on you know, the February 24th lines, uh, and then they'll kick the status of Crimea and the areas already occupied by Russia before February 24th down the road for future negotiations. If President Zelensky decides to do this, it's not like we can say, oh no, you need to keep fighting, right? They're the ones dying and bleeding and they've had 45% of their GDP wiped off in the course of seven or eight months because of this war. They're, they're, bearing a huge amount of the uh, sacrifice here. But we have to plan in the U.S. We have to plan in NATO and we have to plan uh, in the the West if we want to support Ukraine. So I think our planning assumption, until we're told otherwise, our planning assumption should be the full restoration of Ukraine's internationally recognized borders, and that includes Crimea. And that will mean the decisive defeat of the Russian military inside the borders of Ukraine. That's what we should be planning towards. But ultimately, it's up to the Ukrainians to decide, you know, how far they want to take this. And right now, neither side has shown any willingness or genuine desire to come to the negotiating table. And I have to say, I can't can't blame uh, the Ukrainians for this. So... One, uh, briefly explain like why you think, because you've been very clear and very, very um, vocal in, in your support of Ukraine as, um, as an expression of American interest. Like it, you, when, you, when I hear you argue and when I read your stuff, you're not, you're not arguing from a benevolence standpoint. You're, you're, you're making kind of hard national security rationales for the sake of the United States in regards to the, why the outcome in Ukraine matters. So explain a little bit about why you're convinced of that. And then two, that question about what do you think the United States should be doing? Are we doing enough? Should we be doing less? Should we be doing more um, as it regards um, the fight? You know, for, for uh, Americans who believe in um, the primacy of national sovereignty, for Americans who believe in the right of self-defense, 
for Americans who believe um, helping a friend in need, and for an American who believes in having uh, secure and internationally recognized borders, uh, the cause of Ukraine is a logical one. Um, you know, many Americans, I think, sympathize uh, with uh, what's happening to Ukraine, and, and they instinctively want to support uh, Ukrainians. This is where I think some people on the on the right get it wrong about uh, support for Ukraine. You know, you hear these say the, the stuff like you know, the middle America wants doesn't want taxpayers' money going overseas when we have these challenges here in the United States. You know, I'm I'm from Middle America. I grew up in Middle America. I visit Middle America, and I see Ukrainian flags in places where there's not even cell phone signal. Right? I'm often fly fishing in the Shenandoah. I see Ukrainian flags there. A few months ago, I was in West Virginia for a long weekend break up in the mountains. Ukrainian flags there. Americans instinctively support the underdog, and we instinctively want to stick it to Russia. So I have no doubt that you, the Ukrainian people enjoy wide support from the American public on this. But that's more of the normative uh, side of things, right? The emotions and the shared values or whatnot. From a pure, like, hard-headed uh, point of view, I would say that there are you know two reasons why what's happening in Ukraine matters. Firstly, uh, Russia is an adversary of America's. Some in America may not think this, but most policymakers in Russia do believe this, right? And we're told that we need to focus a lot on China and China is our main threat. But what people don't realize is that China and Russia are two sides of the same coin. I mean, in a geographical sense, they're two sides of the same landmass. And Russia is very much China's junior partner. So, Indirectly, anything we do to weaken Russia weakens China. Uh, and of course, China is watching what we are doing uh, to help Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis what their designs might be on Taiwan. So a stronger and victorious Ukraine is a stronger and more secure Taiwan, in my opinion. You cannot address the, the issue of Taiwan without, uh, and, and the issue of uh, uh, an emboldened China, without also dealing with its junior partner, Russia, as well. The two are linked. They cannot be separated. It's a geopolitical ineptitude to try separating these two issues. They, they're, they're conjoined. Um, so that, that's, that's one, um, you know, hard-headed view. The, the other view is uh, one that actually impacts or could impact directly the American worker, right? So again, we're, we're told that China has to be the main focus because, you know, the, the economic future of the world is in Asia and, and uh, you know, this is where, you know, a lot of our trade and the economic activity takes place. And, and you know, th there's a huge amount of economic uh, relations and trade that take place between North America and Asia, without a doubt. I mean, uh, this is very obvious. But people don't realize that the countries of Europe and North America together account for 45% of global GDP. North America and Europe are each other's number one export partner. Uh, when we're exporting something, that means there's an American that's making it or providing a service. 48 out of 50 states export more to Europe than they do to China, uh, including the five Pacific states, Alaska, Hawaii, California, Oregon, and, and Washington, right? Um, so this 
We're each other's number one source of foreign direct investment. We're each other's number one source of the creation of millions of jobs on either side of the Atlantic. And this economic prosperity that's been able to take place in the North Atlantic region uh, has been made possible by a strong U.S. military presence in Europe and NATO, which has brought stability to a continent, a relative stability to a continent that has been mostly at war throughout the past several centuries. Uh, so right now, Putin, by his invasion of Ukraine, is trying to undo all of this. So the economic consequences uh, for not only the globe, but also America, if Europe would start burning again and turn into a zone of major conflict, the economic consequences are impossible to imagine. So that's why it is in America's interest to do what we're doing to support Ukraine so they can fight Russia off, weaken Russia, so we can have a weaker Russia, and if we need to, focus more of our national resources deterring or countering China. But um, we have to also remember we're doing this with not a drop of American blood being spilt, right? No, no, no one in Ukraine is calling for U.S. soldiers to deploy there to fight. No, no serious person in America in the policy community or commentary community is calling for U.S. soldiers to go to Ukraine. Uh, all they're asking for are the weapons and the financial support so they can defend themselves. And I think it's great value for money for the U.S. taxpayer. So you, I mean, what you just laid out is precisely why I routinely kind of turn to your stuff is because it's so rooted in uh, a coherent understanding of, of, of the world and of American interests. Um, because it's easy uh, to, you know, just from an emotional standpoint, root for the Ukrainians, right? That, that, that's easy. I mean, you, you see what's happening and, 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 and it's easy to root. But so much of the, of the conversation, particularly as you mentioned at the top of this, on the right, but so there's actually this strange alignment between, you know, a bipartisan alignment on on Ukraine, generally speaking, and just you, you'd mentioned public support. I mean, just to kind of give you an example of that, 80 percent of Americans support U.S. economic and diplomatic sanctions against Russia. Um, 76 percent uh, support accepting Ukrainian refugees into the United States. Uh, 72 percent. Uh, support providing additional arms and military supplies to the Ukrainian government. Now, even on more um, kind of controversial things that have been cited by some on the right as reasons not to support things like supplemental funding and, and assistance, things like um, supporting, um, uh, uh, giving non-military uh, aid to, to Ukraine, economic aid and otherwise, 66% of Republicans say they support that. Um, the, the, the same thing in terms of, um, providing, uh, giving Ukrainian refugees access. I mentioned that 64% of Republicans say they support that, right? So it's one of these things where there's a, there's a, there's a chorus, I, I think a small but loud chorus on the political right that keeps throwing up these kind of rhetorical clouds about how this isn't what the American people want and this isn't in our interests and so on and so forth. But when you actually ask the American people, they completely disagree. And then when they say there's no interest here and there's no strategy here, it, the, the argument is you have to deny, don't, you know, you're constantly being told by this, this kind of small but loud chorus, don't believe your lying eyes. And so what I want to do with you is, is 
Um, I, I think there's, um, you have identified a couple of the myths that I think un- underscore or, or um, give, give rise to some of this uh, critique on the right, particularly. Uh, if you're up for it, what I want to do is I want to kind of tee up a couple of the myths and I want, I want you to kind of respond to, to each one. Are you, yeah, you up yeah, for that? Absolutely. But before you do that, I just want to point out one of the ironies here is that uh, yeah, this, this, this very small but vocal chorus against U.S. support to Ukraine is um, far from being like reflective or representative of what most Americans feel. This is very much an online phenomenon, right? It's a, it's a very vocal uh, online through social media and certain uh, cable news shows that uh, that share these ideas. So shows it's, that it, are routinely propagated and repeated on Russian tel- television. Exactly, exactly. And what happens is because it's a very much an online phenomenon, it seeps into the discourse inside the beltway. So, you know, a further irony is the fact that um, many of the people who are saying, you know, we, you know, these supplementals are bad because they don't represent the American people. Well, they're getting their, these ideas from like this, uh, this uh, political elite inside the Beltway that's very vocal on social media and on the internet. I mean, for example, my parents said, and then they decry the elite as they make the as they yeah, make their arguments. And in a way, yeah. they've like evolved to become a, an elite inside the elite, right? Right. That has no connection to like my family back home in Missouri. Right. Because no, they're not on Twitter. You know, they're, they're not, you know, following these debates like that. And it ultimately, it harms you, even if their intentions might be good. And I think for some of them, uh, their intentions are, are, are genuine. They've been misinformed, I think. Uh, not not for all of them. I think some of them is by design, but I think for some of them the intentions are good. But they, they are they're just, you know, misinformed by uh, and they're they're really impacted by this echo chamber, so to speak, uh, by certain people on the right that's very vocal online. Yeah. Well, okay, so like um, among these myths are things like we're writing blank checks to Ukraine with no oversight. Yeah, this is one uh, I hear all the time about the supplementals. And take the, the biggest supplemental last May, for example, which was about $40 billion U.S. dollars. Um, this was a, this this bill was about thirty pages long or so, and anyone that that read this bill uh, could see that ten percent of the bill was on oversight and accountability. And in fact, I would argue that there's never been more accountability and transparency uh, put in U.S. foreign assistance than what has been found with our support to Ukraine. And when people say, "Oh, there's not enough accountability. There's wasteful spending. There's not enough oversight," I say, "Well, tell me what would be the acceptable amount of oversight? Because I'm all about accountability and oversight. Tell me what would make you happy to get you on board." And and I, I never receive anything back. I never, you know, hear any concrete uh, proposals or examples on what would satisfy those who say that. We, there's no oversight. So, okay, but then they'll respond by saying, yeah, but $53 billion, Lou, come on. Like, when does it stop? Yeah, well, uh, th- again, another myth is that we've actually been giving Ukraine this money, right? Uh, uh, billions of this of these supplementals stay in the United States. You know, um, uh, Billions of these billions of dollars from these various supplementals actually go towards restocking and rearming U.S. stockpiles. Um, 
billions uh, have gone to uh, paying for the increased U.S. presence in Europe to make sure that the war doesn't spill over to our NATO allies. Uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone towards, you know, of, of uh, improving the force protection of U.S. embassies and consulates. Uh, so the idea that, you know, 53 billion U.S. dollars has just been like transferred to some bank account in Kiev is completely uh, fiction. Uh, it's, it's completely untrue and it's just made up. But it is an effective uh, talking point for those who want to discourage U.S. support to Ukraine. But Luke, shouldn't we? I mean, we've got problems at home. Why why shouldn't we spend these billions of dollars on home, on the on the on the wall or on building you know, infrastructure at home and, you know, all important things that you and I both would say are valuable. Yeah, well, you know, and sometimes uh, in life you have to do more than one important thing at the same time. This is like telling a man that he has to choose between being a good, you know, father or husband or being committed uh, or working hard in his profession. Right. The, the world isn't doesn't operate like this. And it's it's not as if. Uh, had we not passed the Ukraine supplemental in May, uh, all of a sudden the baby formula shortage would have been, you know, resolved. Uh, the, the, these issues are often not connected in any meaningful sense, but they're they're connected in a political sense by those who want to discourage U.S. funding for Ukraine. But you know, where's Europe? How come how come Europe isn't spending more? I mean, like, how come the Germans aren't stepping up or someone else? Why does the United States always have to carry the burden for these countries? Isn't it about time that these other NATO members and and other European allies started kind of pulling their weight? I, for, for for years, uh, we've Americans have been calling on Europeans to spend more in their defense. Um, the reality is, since 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea. The, Russia's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Uh, year on year, defense spending across Europe has increased. Have it, has it increased enough? No. Does it need to increase more? Yes. But on the specific issue of of aid to Ukraine, on a on a per capita basis of GDP, uh, the U.S. actually ranks tenth uh, of countries that have given to to Ukraine. I mean, there are some countries like Estonia that have given over 1% of their total GDP to Estonia or to, to, to Ukraine, helping Ukraine defend itself. So yes, there are countries in Europe, especially the bigger ones like Germany and France, who could probably do more. But let's not pretend like the Europeans are just sitting by and doing nothing. Well, okay, then the U.S. should restrict only uh, its aid to only military aid, explicit military aid. Yeah, this is a very convenient talking point, again, for those who um, want to limit or uh, reduce U.S. military support to Ukraine. But it's completely um, uh, divorced from the reality that's being faced by the Ukrainians. Uh, It's not just the Ukrainian military that's at war with Russia. The whole of Ukrainian society is at war. As I already mentioned, 45% of Ukraine's GDP has been wiped out because of the war. But the government has to function. Uh, If you're fighting a war, a total war of survival, then you have to have total government functioning. You have to have police. You have to have civil servants working. You have to have fire and rescue and hospitals operating. Uh, So U.S. aid has to be comprehensive if we want to be serious about supporting the Ukrainians in their their defense uh, of their homeland. But one further point on this, I I find it uh, ironic that 
people in the past would criticize the U.S. government for not taking this comprehensive approach uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq, for example, right? Like we were too focused on, you know, killing bad guys and the, the hard power side of things. And we should have done more to develop civil society and, you know, uh, institutions, governing institutions and police. And so, so now we, we are doing it right, finally, in a comprehensive way. And there are people who are unhappy with that. Well, and I'll step out of my devil's advocate role for a second and just say, you know, it is it has been true from time immemorial that if you want to keep soldiers in the field fighting, they have to have some sense that their family is being taken care of back home. Right. That that essential services are being provided, that basic law and order are being maintained. Like it's honestly, I find this particular argument typically is only made by people who never have laced it up and kind of gotten out there and, and don't understand the types of things that actually weigh on your mind when you're forward doing these things. Yeah. The last thing you need to worry about when you're already tired, scared, hungry, cold is, uh, you know, is your family safe uh, or essential services being provided? And again, this is one area where some of the strongest uh, oversight and transparency and accountability measures have been placed uh, on this sort of funding to Ukraine. And it's actually another area where the Europeans have really stepped up to the plate as well. Well, okay, so stepping back into my devil's advocate role here. So, well, but U.S. weapons are, are ending up all over the black market and they're not even getting to the front lines, Luke. Why, why do we want to <laughs> kind of continue to have this flow of weapons into the illegal black market of, of Ukraine? Yeah, this is another one that uh, pops up from time to time. Uh, but the, re- the reality is there's no evidence that these weapons are going missing. And, you know, on the contrary, you could argue that because of the successful counterattacks or so far successful counterattacks in Kharkiv and Kherson, these weapons are actually being used quite effectively. Uh, is there a concern that, you know, someday these weapons could, you know, filter out to the black market or end up in hands where they don't belong? This is a risk in any conflict. But usually when this becomes a concern or becomes a possibility is not when the fighting is happening. It's when the fighting usually stops. That's when there could be concerns about some of these weapons ending up on the black market. But this, con- this isn't unique to Ukraine. This could happen with any conflict around the world. So you've kind of dealt with this, but I'll, I'll kind of end my my advocacy with with this last one. And that's look, this is all just a distraction. The, the 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 key national security priority and challenge that we're facing is China, and the more time and energy we spend on Ukraine, the less time and energy we're spending on dealing with what is actual the real problem for us over the next one to two to three decades. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a an important point, so I will be happy to reiterate what I said earlier. Russia is China's junior partner. A defeated Russia will mean a weaker China. And China's watching how we support Ukraine, so a strong, victorious Ukraine will make Taiwan stronger. We need to th- see the big picture here. We need to think geopolitically. We have to look at the Eurasian landmass as a whole. And we have to understand that if we want to have a strong and secure Indo-Pacific, we need to deal with the house that's on fire right now, and that's in Eastern Europe. Luke, this conversation is why I like you. You're super <laughs> smart. You're super helpful on this. You help me think better about it. Um, uh, I, I couldn't be more pleased with the work that you've been doing at Hudson. I know they're exceedingly happy to have you there. Uh, if people want to follow you, read what you're doing, know what you're saying and thinking, how do they do that? 
thanks for your kind words, Klan, and it's, it's a pleasure to be on here. Hudson has, is a fantastic place to work, great colleagues there. Um, you can find some of my writings on uh, Hudson.org, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Luke D for Delta Coffee, and that's C-O-F-F-E-Y, not E-E. Uh, so you can find me there as well. Awesome. Well, hey, Luke, thanks again for taking the time, man. And uh, I really appreciate you setting us straight on all this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.